2009, October 9th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 9, Inside the Earth. The first lecture in Unit 3, Life on the Earth. So even though the beautiful weather has come back, they still managed to make this room a hothouse. I simply can't believe it. Okay, we're beginning Unit 3 today. Unit 3 is going to last through the next couple of weeks and is going to ask the question, what is the nature of life on Earth? And I've divided it up into a number of subunits. Today's subunit, and what we're going to follow this week, will subtitle Part 1, The Cradle of Life. Okay, that's a nice poetic name, but what we're really talking about is the Earth. We want to start looking at the question of life on other worlds, but if we want to learn anything about life on other worlds, we've got to first understand what life is like here on Earth. This is not to say that we believe that life on Earth is a perfect template for what we're going to find out in the universe, but it's the only example we got. Number two, turns out that we have, at least established from the last week, that the physical laws that operate on Earth operate out in the rest of the universe, that the physical processes that gave rise to Earth have a reasonable expectation of occurring elsewhere, as does the chemistry of life. We have good expectations, that's true, so it makes a kind of a template but this isn't to say that I expect to find exactly the same life in, in the universe as I find on Earth. In fact, I have no expectation of that at all because the way in which life develops, this process called evolution or natural selection, is not expected to run exactly the same way over and over again. And so we're going to try to inform ourselves by understanding what life is on the Earth. What are the limits of life on the Earth? What is the nature of it? What is the places where life can't exist on the Earth? that then gives us a way to ask sensible questions when we get out into first the solar system and then to the other stars. So we want to back up a little bit and say, well, first of all, what is the Earth like? What is the Earth's surface and interior and geology like? And what is the Earth's atmosphere like? Now, here's an example of where I'm deviating from the textbook in terms of its order. The textbook dives right away into geology and atmosphere as if it, you already know what those things are. So what I'm doing instead is be, today's lecture and tomorrow is going to review the overview of the Earth as a planet. Today it's interior, tomorrow it's atmosphere and its workings. And then in the subsequent two lectures on Wednesday and Thursday, we're going to address first the geologic history of the Earth, how the Earth's structure got the way it is today, and then the atmosphere history, which is really a topic about how climate is regulated on the Earth through geologic time and what climate change occurs. The climate that we see today, the earth that we see today when we walk outside, is not the same earth it has always been for all time. What are the processes that lead to this evolution of the planet in terms of climate evolution and geological evolution? And how do those tell us something about what our expectations might be for how that sets the habitability of the earth? Was the earth always habitable through its history? Maybe there were periods where it wasn't or might not be in the future. These are important questions if I want to address the question of habitability elsewhere. So today we're going to start out by looking at the Earth as a planet by opening up the Earth and taking a look inside. So this lecture is basically going to describe the basic interior structure of the Earth and its outer crust. The basic points are that the Earth's interior is very strongly differentiated into a solid iron inner core, a molten iron outer core, and a thick rocky mantle and rocky, thin rocky crust. What we're going to find is that the internal structure of the Earth gives rise to the Earth's magnetic field. It's actually generated by convection currents in the outer molten core. Oh, I spelled convection wrong. How about that? If we look at the outside of the Earth, the part we're standing on is the crust, we find the crust of the Earth is not one continuous piece, but it's actually broken up into 16 rigid tectonic plates. And these plates all slide about on top of the mantle. They crash into each other. 
and form boundaries between these plates gives us tectonic and geologic activity. The Earth is a very geologically active world. And all that action, or a lot of the action, goes on at the plate boundaries. The plate boundaries are the places where we have earthquakes, volcanoes, and the recycling of crustal rocks, which is an important part of understanding how the Earth's history plays out. So today we're doing sort of the quick and dirty overview of the geology of the Earth, at least those parts of it that are interesting to us for this class. So if we look at the Earth from the outside, this is a beautiful satellite composite of the Earth looking towards the Indian subcontinent in this particular place. The first thing that strikes you is that the Earth is mostly water. So if we unwrap the Earth a little bit and take away the clouds just to make it a little easier to see with a computer, what we find is that the Earth's surface is in fact mostly oceans. In round numbers, 71% of the, of the surface of the Earth is covered with water, salt water specifically. The remaining 29% is the land surface area concentrated in the seven continents, North and South America, Africa, Europe and Asia, Australia, and the Antarctic. So all of these continents are what we would see if we take a snapshot of the view of the Earth today. And the main lesson we have coming out of this class is that the Earth is not just simply a snapshot like this, but it is an extremely dynamic planet in which an awful lot is going on. And what this class is about is getting at what that dynamical structure is. Now, if I could peel down through the Earth, I would find a lot of interesting things. But the first thing I want to ask is, what's the Earth made of? What is the Earth made of? And the primary points we find is that the surface composition of the Earth is mostly silicates, iron-rich basalts, or basically solidified iron-rich lavas, and carbonaceous rocks. Carbonaceous means carbon-bearing. So here are some examples of very typical Earth surface rocks. We have silicate rocks over here on the left is a chunk of granite. It's nice, basically a silicon uh, igneous rock formed in heat. We have quartz crystals in the form of nice little river stones here. The other form of an igneous rock here, of a, of a fire-borne rock, is this iron-rich rock called a basalt. This is a chunk of Hawaiian lava rock right here. Very, very rich in iron, very dense and heavy. Finally, the other type of rock we find abundantly on the surface of the Earth are carbonaceous rocks, primarily the carbon-bearing rocks like limestone. What we're seeing here is the deposition of sediments, in this case marine sediments that have packed up and solidified over time. So I have all kinds of different rocks represented in, in, this, in this particular picture here. But we're seeing is we're made mostly of silicon or silicates. A silicate is basically silicon and oxygen. Iron-rich basalts, which is iron, iron, oxygen, and a little bit of silicon and magnesium, and maybe some nickel mixed in. Carbonaceous rocks or carbon, and then a quartz is basically silicon oxide crystals. Lots of little mineral grains of quartz crystals all kind of mashed together. Remember from last week, the top ten elements of the universe. The heavy elements, silicon, oxygen, magnesium, iron, sulfur a little bit. Those are the primary elements we find here on the Earth. They're not hydrogen and helium, which are the dominant elements found in the rest of the universe. Now, if we could peel the Earth open, sort of crack it open like you might say, take a slice out of an orange or an apple, what you would find on the inside is that the Earth is extremely hot and dense. Part of that hot and dense is because all the weight of all the other stuff, deep on the, when you're deep in the interior, the weight of everything above you presses down on you, and when you compress something, you heat it up. So if you tried, for example, using an air pump, and as you push down on the air pump, the base of the air pump gets extremely hot. That's from all the air pressure, all the air compression going on at the base of the pump. The same thing happens in any gravitating system. The gravity is trying to crush all the stuff down towards the center. The center grows extremely hot and fairly high pressure. 
Now, the earth originally started out as a conglomeration of rock with all kinds of different stuff mixed in. Iron and silicates were all mixed in into the various components that form the earth. Now, it turns out that iron is a lot denser than silicate rock. If you went out and picked up a lava rock, it would be really heavy and dense. Or if you picked up a typical silicate rock, it would be relatively low density by comparison. There would be a very strong distinction between them. Now make those rocks mostly molten. What happens if you get heavy and light stuff mixed together is the heavy stuff sinks to the bottom and the light stuff goes floating up on top. This is a process called differentiation. A good example of differentiation. You go out to the grocery store and you buy a nice carton of mint chocolate chip ice cream. Okay, what mint chocolate chip ice cream has lots of lightweight stuff, water, butter fat, and heavy chunks, nice big ch- heavy stuff, nice big chunks of chocolate. And you put it out, you get it in the freezer, you get it home, and your roommate takes it out, eats a spoonful, and leaves it on the counter. Okay, and after about a day of that, what's going to happen? The ice cream's going to melt, the lightweight milk solids and liquids going to float to the top, and the chocolate chips are all going to pool at the bottom. So you take a simple mixed amalgam like mint chocolate chip ice cream and melt it, and when it goes molten, it quickly differentiates. Heavy stuff sinks, and the light stuff floats on top. The same thing happened in the case of the Earth. The iron and nickel, which is very abundant, sank straight down to the center and concentrated into the core. The lighter weight silicates and oxygen and things like that floated, silicate, silicon oxygen floated up to the surface until it literally floated on top of this molten mess, eventually solidifying on the outside. So the initial mix was very mixed together, sort of evenly, but by the time the Earth was finished forming, it was strongly differentiated. The heavy metals had sunk to the core, and the lighter silicates had floated up to form the mantle and the crust. So this is the difference between the Earth at formation and the Earth as it was very shortly after formation when differentiation occurs. Differentiation happens really pretty fast. So if we were to slice open a piece of a wedge of the Earth today, this is what we would find going down. We're standing up here on the surface. The surface at its thickest is only 100 kilometers thick. Remember that the entire radius of the Earth from the center to the surface is 6,370 kilometers. So only the upper 100 kilometers is actually surface rock. The deepest we've ever dug in a mine is only a couple of kilometers down. And we drilled down maybe as far as about tens of kilometers. We haven't quite made it all the way through the crust except in the thinnest parts down towards the oceanic crust. Underneath the crust is a very, very thin transition layer where the basaltic lavas occur. This is basically a wet, slippery form of rock. It sort of forms a lubricating surface between the solid crust and the inner portion here, which is called the mantle. Now, the mantle's composition is neither solid nor liquid. It's it's what actually would be sort of an intermediate form, which we'll call plastic. If you've ever played with silly putty or Play-Doh, you get an idea of what the consistency of the mantle is like, right? Silly putty is neither liquid nor solid. It's kind of a mush in between. So the inner portion, and the mantle is very big, and this is drawn to scale. Between 100 kilometers and almost 3,000 kilometers deep, the mantle is making up about 67% of the mass of the Earth, and it's kind of this mushy mass of silicates. If it's mushy, it means it flows slowly in the same way that silly putty flows when you press on it. Now, that whole mushy mass of the mantle is sitting floating on top of all that iron and nickel which sank down to the bottom during the differentiation phase. At the very center, the sort of the pit at the, at the center of the Earth, is a solid iron core containing 2% of the mass and occupying about the last 1,000 kilometers in radius of the Earth. It's a solid iron, but it's at temperatures of more than 5,000 degrees Kelvin. 
The reason why it's so hot is because you say, well, it's so hot because of all the compression, of all the weight of the other 98% of the mass of the Earth on top of it pressing down on it. But for those of you who know anything about metals, know that iron melts at a way lower temperature than 500 degrees Kelvin. The melting point of iron is probably up around 600 or 900 degrees Kelvin. So why is it still frozen? And the answer is basically we have a phenomenon called pressure freezing. The pressure is so intense on the interior of the Earth that iron can't even melt under those pressures. It stays solid. But once you go past about 5,100 kilometers, the pressure, because you've got less stuff above you, drops off and the iron suddenly becomes liquid and molten. And so surrounding this inner iron solid core of 2% of the mass of the Earth is a 30% of the mass of the Earth is in this outer molten iron core. And it extends from about 2,900 kilometers down to about 5,100 kilometers to the center. Yes, sir? How do we know this? Like... How do we know this? Yeah, well, I'm going to get to that. How do we know this? Okay, this I'm just giving you the answer, and I'm going to show you how we got it. So this stuff is molten, which means it's liquid, which means there can be currents and flows within it. So this is what we see on the inside of the Earth. Now, the gentleman here asked the obvious question. Well, if I've only dug mines as deep as a couple of kilometers and maybe drilled a couple of tens of kilometers, how the heck do I know any of this stuff is right? How have I seen inside the Earth? Well, there's a couple different ways we can do that. I'll come up here in just a second to answer that question. Now, the other feature of this, of this interior of the Earth is the, that molten iron outer core. When you have liquids, liquids in a, in a rotating ball want to flow. Now, if you have a flowing, electrically conducting metal, that flow of electrically conducting metal is going to form a dynamo. It's going to form like a little electric generator. So those convection currents, basically boiling motions down inside that liquid outer molten core, sets up strong electric fields. Those strong electric fields building an electric dynamo generates a magnetic field. So the Earth has a magnetic field. We know about North Pole and South Pole and how compasses work. That magnetic field is telling us that the inside of the Earth must be molten metal at some layer. Because if all the metal was solidified, it wouldn't flow. If it doesn't flow, you don't get a dynamo, and you get no magnetic field. So the first clue that the inside of the Earth must be molten is the fact that we have a relatively strong magnetic field. So it's an indirect clue, but, but a fairly good one at that. You can only freeze in magnetic fields into solid materials for just so long before the magnetic fields eventually work their way out. So like a permanent magnet really isn't permanent on geological timescales. So here's a, a sketch coming out of your textbook here in which the Earth's magnetic field threads out into the interplanetary space, basically comes out of the surface of the Earth, and basically acts as a kind of shield around the Earth. It deflects charged particles coming off from the solar wind. We're going to come back to this point a little bit later in the class when we talk about the habitability of the Earth. This turns out to be one factor in making the Earth habitable. It keeps the solar wind off our backs, literally. Now, there are places where the solar wind can actually funnel down through the magnetic field. There are openings at the north and south magnetic poles. And where those charged particles interact and smack into the upper atmosphere is what gives us the aurora borealis. So we can get an idea of what the shape of the magnetic field is by looking at the patterns of the aurorae and by making measurements on the surface of the Earth of the patterning of the Earth's magnetic field. So the first important clue that something going on inside the Earth is molten is the presence of that strong magnetic field. Now, the other question is, how do I tell you the... I gave you very specific details about temperatures and depth and densities and composition down there. How do I know that? 
Well, the way we do that is earthquakes give us the way to look inside the Earth because it makes waves inside the Earth. And here's basically how it works. An earthquake is basically a relief of strain in the surface of the Earth in the crust. The crust breaks and buckles. Either you get a very strong vertical shear or you might get a, a deep oh, lateral shear where you're sticking along two plate fault boundaries and suddenly, boom, the whole thing jumps. You unleash a tremendous amount of energy in those events, many times the power of nuclear weapons, but deep inside the Earth, not, not like explosions, but you're just releasing a tremendous amount of pent-up energy. That makes a tremendous bang into the Earth. And those waves coming out from that point rattle down through the Earth. Now, there's two different kinds of waves that go through solid materials. The first of these are called S waves or shear waves. And the cartoon here is of a rope being swung up and down. What I'm seeing is I bang a piece of rock and it pulls the piece of rock next to it, which pulls the piece of rock next to it. And I set up a wave which moves along by shearing its neighbors. So if you've ever been in a stadium doing the wave where people stand up and sit down, you're making a shearing wave. So we get these shearing waves moving through. They're trying to get stuff moving past other stuff. These are pretty important because shearing waves work really well moving through solids. But when you try to move a shearing wave through a liquid, it gets damped out and goes boom and dies out. So if I send a shear wave through rock, it'll pass through the rock just fine. And if it hits a molten region, it'll damp. So having a molten region between you and a shear wave will block the shear wave. The other kind of shear wave is called a pressure wave. Pressure wave is like a sound wave. Spring my hands together. Sound wave is a compression of air moving out through the room. Similarly with rock. Push the rock down, and it pushes on its neighbors, which then pushes on its neighbors and which goes through. And pressure waves move like this, side to side, rather than up and down like this. So a pressure wave going through is going to pass through not only solid regions, but it will also pass through molten region. It will pass through the loose liquid parts. Both of these kinds of waves are created inside of earthquakes. And this is the key to understanding how we can tell the interior of the Earth. The earthquake sets off a bang on the surface, and then we watch the S waves and P waves rattle their way through the Earth, basically allowing us to view the inside of the Earth the same way that a doctor views the inside of your body with a CAT scanner. So here's a, a picture off to the side here as a picture of the Earth. An earthquake occurs over here on this point. The P waves and S waves go shooting out. Now remembering that the P waves, the pressure waves, can pass through just about everything. So a pressure wave moving right through the solid, the mushy mantle, through the liquid core. Liquid doesn't bother a pressure wave. It just keeps moving along. Hits the solid iron core and says, OK, fine, I'm in solid. And it just passes on through. So pressure waves end up finding themselves making seismographs rattle on the other side of the Earth from the core. The S waves, on the other hand, only get as far as the out inner portion of the mantle. When they hit the liquid inner core, they did damp out and they're shut down. So if I look around on the opposite side of the Earth from the, uh, from the earthquake, I will find that close to the earthquake, in this zone over here on the left, I will see both P waves, pressure waves, and S waves, those shearing waves. On the other side of the Earth, I will see P waves all the way around. But the shear waves will all be damped out by having to pass through the liquid outer core. And so I end up with a P wave shadow zone on the back side. So if I've got a network of seismographic stations along here, I'll see me go from, sh from P waves all the way around. But I'll see the S waves suddenly walk into shadow as I go through each station. 
Now, I can't always pick where my earthquakes go off, so an earthquake going off in different places, you can see where the network basically picks up different slices through the Earth. And I build up those slices through hundreds and hundreds of earthquakes, and pretty soon I've done tomography, and I've built up a complete picture of the inside of the Earth. The way in which these earthquakes, these waves, rattle around, they don't just pass through once, they actually rattle back and forth. What's shown in this picture over here on the right, remember a number of years ago, that tremendous earthquake in Indonesia that caused that terrible tsunami that killed about a quarter of a million people. That actually produced an echo of seismic waves rattling through the planet. So here's up near the epicenter in Sri Lanka, which is one of the places that got hit by the tsunami wave. You see the immediate prompt, very quick arrival of seismic waves. A little bit later, Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean saw it. Mongolia saw it a little bit later after that. Papua New Guinea, um, Zambia. Finally, a little bit later, we get down here into the uh, South Atlantic, stations out there in the South Atlantic Ocean. Uh, Pinion Flat, California seismograph stations picked it up a little bit later. And then halfway around the world, down in Ecuador, they saw the wave basically close around the surface there, the, surface, the, the, the pressure wave. Then a little bit later, it rattled back and forwards. In fact, you can see the waves echoing, ringing the earth like a gong. So as we watch the patterning of waves and you see whether which combination of pressure waves and shear waves arrive at your seismograph stations, you can tomograph the interior of the earth. It's a very, very powerful tool. It lets us peer inside the earth just the same way a doctor can peer inside your skull without having to cut you open with an MRI. Same basic principle called tomography. Okay, so that's how we know, we have a good feeling, this is what the structure of the Earth is on the inside. If we look at the outside of the Earth, we look at the outer crust, what we find is that the crust, that's sort of thin, maximum, you know, it goes as thin as 10 kilometers in the ocean basins, as thick as 100 kilometers in the thickest continental areas, the crust, in fact, is not all of one piece. There's two different types of crust, and those crusts turn out to be broken up into about 16 different rigid plates, that literally float on top of the mantle. So instead of thinking the Earth's outer crust as a single complete shell, think of it like a, like a skull which is broken into various pieces and plates that all fit together like a giant puzzle piece. Sixteen of them all. Sometimes big, sometimes small, but sixteen in total. The plates come in two basic types. Oceanic plates are the thinnest and youngest plates on the Earth. They're the youngest crust, and they're only about five to ten kilometers thick, and they're down on, mostly on the seafloor. So we call these oceanic plates. Other places, the crust is very thick, built up and buckled and compressed, and can grow quite thick, between 20 and 70 kilometers thick. And this is on the continental plates. These are the oldest crustal rocks on the Earth, and often the thickest. The very thickest places in the continent can get close to 100 kilometers in single places where there's deep plumes going down. But on average, it's between 20 and 70 kilometers thick. So we immediately see that the plates are not all just simple copies of each other. We have thin, young plates and less dense material out on the uh, oceanic plates and the old, thick, dense continental stuff out making up the continents. And they all float on top of the mantle. The mantle is sort of this mushy, squishy rock. Now the actual floating point, it turns out that the transition between the crust and the mantle is not immediate. It's not like you have, don't, don't imagine rock, plates of rock floating on silly putty. Imagine that between the silly putty is a kind of a slick molten rock made mostly of iron-rich basaltic lava. So we have rock on top of silly putty, but someone's laid down a thin layer of grease, in this case lava magma grease. 
And this actually means that the plates can slip on top of the magma. So that, uh, on top of the mantle. So the whole thing is lubricated on the transition between crust and mantle, and the whole thing can slip around laterally. Now it all is closed up. It's all of a big 16-piece puzzle. But it can slide around freely on the earth. Well, okay. Slide around freely does not mean like, whoa, whoa, hey, the whole continent just slipped. It's really slow. But it does move over time. And this motion is the dynamicism of the earth. It's what's known as plate tectonics. Each of these plates is known as the tectonic plates. So here's that unwrapped view of the Earth. And now we're going to erase the oceans so we can see the ocean basins here easily. We can do this, of course, with bathymetric measurements that have mapped out the oceans in great detail. We see the blue lines here outline the outlines of the various plates. So for example, this one here I'm pointing out with my laser pointer is the North American plate, which has its boundary out in the mid-Atlantic and its other boundary out around along the west coast of the United States. Out in the Pacific is a thin oceanic crustal plate called the Pacific Plate. And they happen to meet along a boundary that runs through Baja, California, and most of California. We'll see that later. And there's the South American Plate, the African Plate, the Eurasian Plate is a gigantic one, and so on and so forth. The um, Saudi Arabia, for example, the Arabian Peninsula, is part of its, actually its own plate. So is the Indian subcontinent. It's part of another plate. It's part of the Indian and Australian plate down here. And there are a bunch of little tiny ones broken up in various and sundry places. Even a little tiny one way up in here, which is not seen on this map. Now, if you just looked at this map, you would see that, well, the continents do, in fact, tend to reside in one of the plates. And the major ocean basins also tend to be outlined by a plate. So the distinction between continental crust and oceanic crust is recapitulated in these, in these plates. But you can see there are mixes. For example, here's continent, but there's ocean plate mixed in, for example, here on the South American plate. Now, if we then overlaid on this map the locations of earthquakes, the epicenters of all those earthquakes we use to map out the Earth, what I get is this picture. This is now a couple of decades worth of earthquake mappings, and these are the epicenters, the place where that little strain bomb went kaboom and dumped um, um, energy into the Earth's crust. We can see a very strong locus. Basically, if I didn't have the blue lines telling me where the uh, crustal plate boundaries were, you can see this is how we map out the crustal plate boundaries. We map out the epicenters. So earthquakes don't happen just anywhere. They can occasionally. You'll notice a very strong yellow point down here in Missouri is the New Madrid Fault. It's right smack in the middle of a crustal uh, a continental plate, nowhere near the boundaries. So we're not exclusively, you can't have Earthquakes just at the plate boundaries, but most of them are outlined by the plate boundaries. And you see very strong earthquake locus, for example. Look at this mass of yellow points in Indonesia, right? There was just that terrible earthquake last week, a seven point something on the Richter scale. So very clearly that whatever the activity is going, where the plates grind and bump together is where most of the earthquakes occur. Or in the, between the plates, where strain can build up, where crust is getting crumpled, and eventually the strain builds up and crumples, if you will, inland from the boundary of the plate. Now, if I also plot now not just simply the location of the earthquakes, but the location of all the Earth's major volcanoes, you now again see this little, little red triangle. Each of these little red triangles is a major volcano. You'll notice a huge chain of volcanoes running along the north edge of the Pacific plate and out around here to the uh, Indonesian coast in Japan, down here. This whole place here is often referred to as the Ring of Fire, you may have heard of from geology. There are, Earth, there are active volcanoes in South America, out here in 
um, the boundary between uh, Europe and the African plate. That bright red one there is Mount Etna on the island of Sicily. There are active volcanoes up here in the island of Iceland, which again is on the boundary between the uh, Asian plate and the North American plate out in the Mid-Atlantic. So volcanoes are also the places located near plate boundaries. There are, of course, notable exceptions. This lone triangle in the middle of the Pacific plate is Mauna, is, uh, Mauna Loa, the active, island, the active volcano on the big island of Hawaii. And there are clearly some other active volcanoes sitting out in the middle of nowhere, for example, in Africa down here. Kilimanjaro is one of these um, volcanoes, even though it's not currently active. All the North American volcanoes are up in Washington and Oregon, not surprisingly, although there are possibly some few inland at places like Yellowstone. There are still mag possibility of magma po pockets deep in the earth below the crust that can bubble up. Now, I said that these plates slide around, but something's got to drive that sliding, and the conveyor belt that moves this around is in that mushy mantle. The mantle is neither liquid nor solid. It's kind of just sort of plastic. But because it's hot on the bottom and cool on the top, you immediately set up boiling motions, just like having a pot of water. You heat the water on the pot on the bottom. The water on the bottom of the pot heats up. It becomes buoyant. It rises to the top of the pot, displacing cold water down. And you set up that rolling, rolling boil you get in a pot of water when you make a pasta or something. The same thing happens deep in the earth. The deep interior of the earth is very hot. At the base of the mantle, the top of that molten core, that heating makes a hot bottom. It becomes buoyant. It becomes buoyant and rises, displacing the cooler material down. And so you set up a very slow rolling boil inside the mantle. Now, because you've got a slightly sticky, semi-lubricated surface there, as you're getting these boiling motions in the mantle, they're slowly tugging at the continental plates and the oceanic plates, and they're making them slide back and forth. The speeds we're talking about here are really slow. Basically, it's about the speeds that fingernails grow, you know, a few centimeters per year. But they slide laterally. They have all kinds of motions as the plates are moving around. They pick up the local current, and they kind of ride it slowly in one direction. They get dragged over. It's what's called plate pull or plate drag. So there's three different kinds of motion that you can occur with the plates moving along. Two plates can be drawn together by a convection current, so they collide directly into each other. Other places, you get an upwelling where the magma is pushing in opposite directions out of there, and the two plates will be drawn apart. And in other places, you might get convection currents which are running in opposite directions, and the plates slide past each other laterally. Each of these give me the three possibilities of sliding plates, each with different boundaries. And of course, not surprisingly, they have names. Okay. Here's a map, for example, of the motions of these plates. So the arrows here have been grossly exaggerated. The actual speeds are centimeters per year. Here's the arrow here in the lower left shows you five centimeters per year of motion. So some things, like you can see, the entire continent of Australia seems to be moving up to the northeast. And it's moving up to the northeast at a speed of nearly 12 to 15 centimeters per year. Similarly, up here, along the North American and um, Pacific plates, the plates are actually moving in slightly opposite directions. So that's a place where the plates are moving apart. If you look up here in the Indian plate, the Indian subcontinent is basically crashing its way up into the Eurasian plate. And you can see these motions have been mapped out in great detail. We're literally measuring down to centimeters per year of motion. So we've mapped these out enough to see what the sort of motion of this dance of the plates around the surface of the Earth is. 
Well, if I run that movie backwards 750 million years and then run it forward, this is what the surface of the Earth looked like from 750 million years ago, which is in the Precambrian era, up to the present day. You can see that that sort of general gestalt, that the continents all look like they're pieces of a mismatched puzzle that should be together, is a correct one. For example, this gap that you see between North America and South America and Africa, they were once together and then are only recently splitting apart along the mid-ocean ridge that runs through the North and South Atlantic. This continental drift, or plate tectonics, is what makes the Earth such a dynamic place. And as we're going to see in some later lectures, it actually has very specific predictions and very specific implications for understanding the long-term habitability of the Earth. It actually sets up part of the geological cycling that changes dramatically the Earth's climate. So here are the different kinds of transform boundaries, or what are called sorry, different kinds of boundaries between plates and what they can do. The most obvious of these are the so-called transform boundaries. These are where two plates are grinding past each other laterally. The most famous of these is between the Pacific Plate and the North America Plate, which crosses inland along the infamous San Andreas Fault. So the Pacific Ocean, the Pacific Ocean Plate, which basically bears everything from San Francisco south down to Los Angeles and San Diego, is slowly moving north. Meanwhile, uh, Berkeley and, uh, and, and others are slowly sliding to the south. Where those two slide apart, there is literally a crack in the surface of the Earth. Strain builds up over time, maybe over a century or so, and then all of a sudden the whole shebang will jump like two meters in a fraction of a second. When that happened in 1906, it flattened San Francisco. It just plain nearly wiped it off the map. It hasn't broken in a while, so when I was growing up in California, in fact, I grew up right here on the edge of the Garlock Fault. I got woken up in the morning a couple times by the Garlock Fault when I was a kid. I got woken up by some of the big earthquakes down here in L.A., too. But you can see the locus of the various earthquakes that have occurred along the San Andreas Fault. The 1906 quake was up to the north. The 89 Loma Prieta quake, the trash Santa Cruz, was over here. The 1994 quake was just off to the side below the uh, San Andreas Fault. So this faulting and this earthquake gives us one of the examples of a trans what's called a transform boundary, these sort of lateral sliding of plates. And it has some, you know, very, very dramatic um, effects. This highway here, by the way, is Highway 14 in California. I used to drive past this road cut. You could actually see the road cut went across the San Andreas Fault, and you could see the folding of the rock in that fault. It really is showing you the power of the Earth's motion. Convergent boundaries are where two of the plates are being drawn together and colliding. For example, when the Nazca plate runs into the South American plate, the lighter Nazca plate is basically loses the battle. Basically, there's two opposing forces trying to push against each other, and one of them is going to lose. And the lighter, thinner Nazca plate loses and actually gets shoved down into the mantle, a process called subduction. As this crustal rock gets shoved into the mantle, it heats up and eventually melts and goes away. Meanwhile, the force of pushing has got the rest of the continent pushing behind and piling up, just like pushing snow along the sidewalk with a shovel, has shoved a whole bunch of older crustal rocks up into making the Andes Mountains. The tops of the Andes are more than 20,000 feet. We're upthrust by this buckling as the South America plate and the Nazca plate ram into each other. An even more dramatic one of those collisions between the Indian plate and the Eurasian plate is what upthrusts the Himalayas. If you go to the, to the top of Mount Everest, 
you see marine sediments and marine fossils in the rock, and yet it's the highest place, 8,000 meters above sea level. It's because it used to be seabed, but the collision has actually thrust the mountains up into the air. So the other place where you can get subduction is ocean-to-ocean plate. So, for example, where the Eurasian plate and the Pacific plate out in the West Pacific are crashing together, the Pacific plate is losing, and then the upbuckle of the Eurasian plate makes, among other things, the Japanese islands and makes Indonesia. So that's why there's such terrible earthquakes, is they have this vertical downward motion of subduction. The strain builds up, and when those earthquakes break, instead of breaking left to right, they go boom. And suddenly you get the ocean floor dropping tens of meters and the water goes down and then it sloshes in and you get terrible tsunamis. That's why Indonesia is such a tremendously active place. It's basically people living on islands which are being created by one of these convergent boundaries. Very, very geologically active. <coughs> these are important because these are places where old crust gets steadily destroyed and recycled. Remember, you melt rock, a lot of the earth rock on the, on the earth's crust, I said last week, is less than 100 million years old. Here is part of that recycling mechanism. So this is the cycling part, this is the destruction part. The divergent boundary is the creation of new crust part. This is where two plates are actually moving away from each other. And if you remember that movie of continental drift, this is North America and this is Europe and Africa. And there's the boundary between the North American, African, and Eurasian plates here making this long mid-ocean ridge at the junction where the two plates are spreading apart. In fact, you can even see the spreading apart in the faulting here. You can see it breaking apart. When these junctions occur, these junctions between two spreading plates occur within continents, they form rift valleys. One of these is occurring in Africa, forms the Great Rift Valley out in eastern Africa. When they occur between oceanic plates, you get these so-called mid-ocean ridges. These are places where the gap being opened up, magma from below in the mantle, flows up and solidifies, building brand new crust. So as I radiometrically date rock from the center of the mid-ocean ridge outward, I see rock getting progressively older because it solidified a long time ago, back when this rock used to be back on the ridge. And I can actually map the rate of that travel by using a combination of radiometric dating and some tricks with magnetic fields frozen into these things. Where the Earth pulls apart, you can get spectacular volcanoes. Here's the north edge of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, cuts right across the volcanic island of Iceland. Here's the Krafla volcano from just a couple of years ago. As the North American plate and the Eurasian plate pull apart, you get very active volcanism. All the little triangles there are volcanoes which have gone off in this, in this both the last century and currently. So this is why Iceland is so active a place, is it's literally being pulled into half. The eastern part of Iceland is being pulled off towards Europe, and the western portion is basically being pushed off towards North America. So the three kinds of boundaries, side-to-side motion, head-on collisions, and pulling apart. But there are other loci of geologic activity as well that are equally important. In the middles of plates, you can get a little welling of magma. can actually work its way up from the inside of the crust and work itself into a pocket, forming a hot spot that kind of bulges up into the crust, where the crust gets very thin, especially out here on the oceanic plates. It can eventually find a crack and begin to well up as a brand-new volcano. As that volcanic area builds up, eventually it breaks through the ocean surface, and you build a gigantic what's called shield volcano. It's called a shield volcano because when you look at it from above, it looks like an old warrior's shield 
held around in a circle because it's built up just by stuff coming up and building up a mountain in place. Now this particular hot spot, which is currently under just offshore of the big island of Hawaii, is right now forming a new Hawaiian island called Loihi. Loihi will basically become one of the Hawaiian island chain in about a million years. The most active volcanism is up here on the big island of Hawaii, where Mauna Loa still has active volcano eruptions. I've observed at the observatory over on the extinct volcano of the big island, Mauna Kea, and seen the fireworks show from Mauna Loa on the next ridge over. It's rather exciting, but good the wind was blowing in the right way. Yeah, question there. Uh, you said that island that's forming that volcano under, how far under the water is that? That's a good question. No, I've forgotten what the sea dip is off of uh, Hawaii. It's a few kilometers. It's a few kilometers down. I may, I'm probably getting that wrong, but it's really deep. It's going to take a while to get up there. But if we look out, we see the Hawaiian island chain goes out to the island of Kauai. Kauai is geologically very old, very heavily eroded, whereas here there's fresh lava flows on the big island. But if I follow under sea, most of the mountains never broke through the ocean. And so they form a long chain until they get up to Midway Island, which is so ancient, in fact, it's eroded right down to sea level. It's just basically an atoll with a little bit of rock on top of it. If I zoom out, courtesy of Google Earth, this is in fact the Pacific Plate, centered up on the Pacific Plate here. Here's the Big Island of Hawaii where the hotspot is here. Here's Kauai, here's Midway. The general motion of the Pacific Plate has been moving more or less in this direction, and we can see the motion has been traced out by leaving behind a trail of progressively older and older hotspot shield volcanoes. They're old, ancient, burned out volcanoes, as I move progressively west-northwest, I get older and older and older undersea islands. But about 100 million years ago, the plate had actually changed motion. 100 million years ago, the plate was actually moving mostly north. So the plate originally slid up this way and then kind of started sliding this way. And so what we're seeing is the hot spot underneath the crust tracing out the last 250 million years of the history of the motion of the Pacific Plate. So we can piece together deep history and deep interior from a combination of geologic tricks of earthquakes and these plate faults. The basic lesson is that the Earth is a dynamic, evolving planet. It's been shaped and reshaped by tectonic and weathering forces over, that have acted over billions of years. Most of the surface we see is relatively young. It's been recycled many times. But it's still extremely active today because the deep interior of the Earth is still hot, mostly because of radioactive decay of the bulk of the matter in the, material, in the, in the Earth. The Earth's tectonic activity is interesting to us because, as we're going to see in Wednesday's lecture on geolo geology, history, and habitability, it plays a key role in determining the history of the conditions on the surface of the Earth and hence whether the conditions are ripe for life or not. Any questions? Okay, if not, I will see you all tomorrow then.